saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, their, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Uh, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, the, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise, Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. And you might as well turn with me to page 826 in Matthew's Gospel there in your pew Bibles. While you're doing that, I'll go ahead and pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So we're going to take a short break from Jonah for the holiday week. You don't have to cheer or anything, it's okay. Um, I haven't always done a specific Palm Sunday message, but I I like that this reading this year happened to be in Matthew's Gospel, uh, because we've been floating in and out of Matthew now for like the better part of a year, right, or or more than a year. uh, we did the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? We, we did the Great Commission. We did several of the Advent messages. Christmas Eve, we were there again. Uh, so he doesn't seem to go away. So I, I'm going to probably revisit this gospel a couple more times in coming weeks. But it's fitting because I've said again and again that Matthew's the most Jewish of the gospels. That's kind of his thing, right? And uh, so it kind of weaves in well with our Old Testament studies uh, in Jonah. And we might see a little bit of overlap today. Um, I've said this in other years If I'm honest, Palm Sunday is a weird one to me. Uh, We celebrate with palms, and that's fun and everything, and it gives the kids something to play with, grown-ups too. Um, And we kind of make a mess, right? And the kids will help us clean it up, I assume, right later. And, um, And we do all this to celebrate the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, which is a visit that doesn't end very well. Uh... And of course, the original crowd didn't realize that at the time, but we do, so I do kind of find it a little odd that we do this every year. Uh, But nevertheless, there was this parade on the first Palm Sunday, and who doesn't love a parade? Like that hokey old song from the 30s, I love a parade, right? I only know that one because they used to use it in Looney Tunes. But just watching a parade is fun, right? Think of the St. Patrick's Day Parade, right? We had that a couple weeks ago at my house, and it goes right by the house, and it feels like it's a party designed just for us. It's a beautiful thing. Um, When I was a kid, we went to see the Mummers every New Year's Day, which proves that parades can be exciting even in bad weather. Although I strongly suspect, actually I know, that much of the crowd carries liquid warmth with them. 
and not just hot chocolate and coffee either, but um, still, people are drawn to a parade. It's exciting. Uh, but how do most parades happen? They're not usually a spontaneous thing, right? Like most of them are planned by whatever city or township or whatever is hosting it. It's a, it's a civic event. Your, your city, your township, your village plans these things to celebrate uh, sort of their civic pride, patriotism, a sense of community accomplishment, what have you. A parade is how a city celebrates victories and holidays. It is therefore unusual for a parade to take a city by surprise. Uh, for those of you who were raised on Disney films, maybe you've seen Aladdin. He wishes for the genie to make him a prince. And the way the genie fulfills this wish is not to actually give him a country, which would make more sense if you were actually going to make him a prince, but uh, he, he gives him a parade. That's what he creates. Uh, and so Aladdin marches into the city, provided with his own army of entertainment. And it's over the top, but the song is catchy, so it's okay. Um, things like that don't typically happen, do they? Uh, except in Disney movies. And yet... Jesus comes to Jerusalem with his own parade in tow. I don't know that it ever really struck me before this week, but this crowd is not a Jerusalem crowd, not primarily. John's Gospel says there were some people that came out from the city for this thing, but, but Matthew gives the impression that this parade took the city kind of by surprise. And it's demonstrated by the question that they're asking in verse 10. He says the city is saying, who is this? In other words, what's all the hubbub about? Jesus is traveling with his own crowd. He has a built-in, prepackaged parade. Jesus brings the party. Jesus is the life of the party. The party follows him wherever he goes. He's completely surrounded at all times. Verse 9 says as much, that there's the crowd that went before him and followed him. He's surrounded. Like, no wonder he wanted to hide sometimes. He goes off to, like, you know obscure places to pray. I don't blame him. I've wondered if Jesus ever got tired of being the life of the party, because it must have been a lot of pressure. But Jesus seems to roll with it here, and the first thing that you take away from this passage is kind of the vibe you get from it, is that they get the worship right. They're laying their cloaks on the road, and of course the palms, right? And the cloak thing is actually kind of stunning because clothing was expensive back then. We, we live in a culture where clothing is relatively cheap, sometimes free. Uh, my kids wear a lot of hand-me-downs, and uh, that's how I grew up too. Uh, and the rest comes from thrift stores. Our parents were thrifting before Macklemore made it cool for millennials. Um, but I noticed that in spite of the cheap availability of clothing... I didn't check. We don't do this anymore, right? Um, no church-going American is about to lay their suit jacket in the aisle on Palm Sunday. Uh, instead, we use palms. Why? Because they're cheap and the church provided them. And um, it would seem silly and extravagant to use the clothes off of our back in that way. When I was a kid, I, I went to a Flyers game and someone scored a hat trick. I don't know, I may follow hockey, but if you score three goals in a game, that's a hat trick. And they call it a hat trick because what you're supposed to do to acknowledge this feat is you're supposed to take your hat and throw it out on the ice, and then they take the next, like, ten minutes cleaning the ice up. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, but I was wearing a hat that I liked, <laughs> so I didn't throw it. Uh, I don't remember who scored the hat trick or even which hat this was. I'm guessing it probably wasn't really worth saving, but any which way, I just remember that feeling. I didn't want to lose a perfectly good hat uh, just for this thing. And so to me, this thing with the cloaks 
feels particularly extravagant. It's, it's making a statement. And of course, the statement is, it's rather political as well as religious. Uh, they're treating Jesus like a king. Laying out your cloaks is not an extravagance if he's a king. Uh, that would just be showing respect. So in this scene, Matthew tells us that most of the crowd used their cloaks to make a path. Most of the crowd did. And it seems like the palm thing was for those who didn't have a cloak. And they do this because they see Jesus and they see a king. And they say the right things in this scene. In verse 9, right? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They get the worship right. And I don't say any of this to guilt you all into stripping layers and throwing things in the center aisle. You don't have to do that today. It's okay. My, my point is that this crowd has a pretty high view of Jesus and who he is. Uh, and Jesus doesn't tell them to beat it or stop making a scene. In fact, in Luke's account, he affirms that they're doing exactly the right thing, and he says that if they weren't here making a fuss, the very stones would cry out. Jesus needed to be welcomed and worshipped in this way, and if Jerusalem wasn't ready to welcome him, well, he's brought his own party, that's fine. And they get the worship right. Now, you put it that way, and the crowd seems like a pretty admirable character, as it were, right? Uh, they seem to know something that most of Jerusalem doesn't. They know that Jesus is a prophet. That's how they answer the question in verse 11. Uh, and by their actions with the cloaks and the palms, they're clearly implying that Jesus is a king. And both of these things are true and accurate as far as it goes. They show that he is worthy of worship. They understand that much. And the question that's raised in verse 10 is sort of the crux of this passage. It's more critical than the details of the parade itself or the palms and the cloaks. The answer to that question of who is this kind of explains everything. World history, in fact, hinges on the answer to that question. Who is this? Who specifically on that Sunday before Passover 2,000 years ago is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Who is this Jesus? The answer to that question sort of determines everything. And the crowd gives a partial answer. But they also have a significant blind spot. And it's something we miss when we read this passage without its broader context. Some pastors will make the case that this is the same crowd that would later condemn Jesus. I'm not entirely convinced of that, uh, that they were the people that were crying out for his crucifixion. I think that might be partly true. There might be some overlap. It's not entirely obvious. But at the very least, what we do know about this crowd is that most of them are going to abandon Jesus. And we know that because by the time we get to Calvary, there is no massive, adoring, sympathetic crowd. They'll fade away for the most part, within a week. So when we only read these 11 verses, it looks like a great party thrown by well-meaning people. These are Jesus groupies, and they seem like they're on point for the most part, like they have some understanding of who this Jesus is. But if we go back even slightly, you begin to sense that they were clueless before this. And I want us to look at what happens right before this in Matthew's account, because I think Matthew sets a certain tone about this crowd that's important. Uh, look at chapter 20, just this paragraph before the, uh, chapter 21 begins. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, 
And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This passage doesn't sit well with me, and it doesn't seem to mesh very well with the account that we were assigned there in 21. The same crowd that welcomes Jesus as a king and a prophet, who roll out the red carpet and lay down the very clothes off their backs, loudly proclaiming him as the king here in Jerusalem. Just a short while earlier, that same crowd rebukes a pair of blind men. Why? Because they ask for mercy. They don't ignore the blind men. They rebuke them. They get the worship right, but they don't have time for people. The more I think about it, the more I think they don't really understand the answer to the question in verse 10, maybe at all. Their understanding is very limited. And so is their faith. Who is this? Oh, he's a prophet. Maybe even a king. And a king can't be troubled with every little thing. Jesus is about to hit the big time in Jerusalem. This is his glorious moment. This is what we've been waiting for. They are awaiting a king who will restore the nation to Israel. And they want these blind men gone, essentially for the same reason that Allentown starts towing cars and street sweeping two days before the St. Patrick's Day parade. Appearances matter. The parade is about to begin. These two blind men are killing the vibe. It's a serious buzzkill. They are distracting us from the real work. You can't make a strong showing in Jerusalem if the beggars are hanging around. The crowd sees the blind men as a distraction from the very important work that Jesus has to do. He can't be troubled with such things. Not now. So who does the crowd think Jesus is, really? Who is Jesus if he can't be bothered with two blind men? Well, they expect a king, but they have their mindset on an earthly kingdom. That's the highest good. That's the final victory. The earthly kingdom is what they're concerned with. And let's face it, blind men can't fight. They're a liability. And if you think of Jesus as a political savior, there's no time for blind men. They have no role in such a movement. Well, who do the blind men think Jesus is? They call him the son of David too, so they they agree. He's a king. But they also believe he's someone who has power to do something for them, and it's more than just conquering Rome because they ask him to restore their sight, fully expecting that he can do so. 
They don't question his ability. They believe he has the power to heal them. All they need to do is ask for mercy. So that's what they do. And they believe, they hope, that Jesus will make time for them. So they cry out all the louder over the crowd, and Jesus has pity on them and heals them. Why does Matthew tell this story right before the triumphal entry? Jesus did countless such miracles in three years of earthly ministry. Doubtless, many are not recorded in Scripture at all. John tells us as much. And yet Matthew tucks this little detail into the mix right before Jerusalem. Mark's gospel tells a similar story, too. In Mark's account, he mentions only one blind man, but he also gives us a name, Bartimaeus, It's probably the same story told from another perspective, but Mark is concerned for us to see the story from the perspective of the blind man himself, so he gives us a name and kind of tells it from that angle. I think Matthew includes this story without giving any names, mostly to indict the crowd. I think he intends for us to see that this crowd was misguided from the start. He wants us to see how confused they were before they ever got to Jerusalem. I think he wants us to feel that something is off. That the enthusiasm for Jesus is based on false assumptions. No one in this crowd or in Jerusalem seems to really understand who Jesus is. Or what he's doing. Because in most ways they get the worship right, but they don't have time for people. When you don't know who Jesus is, it's very easy to treat him like an empty vessel. It's the same thing people do with politicians. Uh, People tend to project onto their favorite candidates whatever they want them to be. Uh, Politicians love that. They want you to take their face and just sort of slap it on whatever your hopes already were, right? And then people later complain that politicians have no soul because they are empty vessels, which is why they tend to adapt to whatever's popular. But that ain't how Jesus rolls. This crowd has a rude awakening coming their way. They expect a conquering hero who's going to come into the Roman-occupied Jerusalem and drain the swamp, to borrow a phrase. The crowd expects an inspirational holiday week with Jesus. He's going to take the place by storm. All the visitors in town are going to get on board. It's going to be great. And the last thing he needs is some blind men getting underfoot. I think Palm Sunday is an annual cautionary tale that it is easy to be a Jesus groupie when things are going well and it's a party. But not every groupie really knows who he is or what he's doing. For three years, he gave free lectures, he fed people, he healed people, he loved people, and many believed, but many others who claimed to follow Jesus were only along for the ride. And they'll only stick around as long as things are going well. They think of Jesus as a reflection of them and their values. He's the empty vessel that they fill with their own expectations, and he's been telling them for how long now that he's going to die, and yet here they are expecting victory. That's why they call it the triumphal entry. 
They confuse his kingdom with theirs, and that means they get their priorities all screwed up. Jesus becomes merely a political figure, and blind men become liabilities, and the groupies come to see themselves as a critical part of Jesus' success. We're here to defend him. They're here for the victory lap and for the parade and for the party. And Jesus is the life of the party. But they have no idea how ugly things are about to get. And when it does, most of them will not stick around. They're huge fans of Jesus. Until something goes wrong. Matthew includes this story to show the contrast. His theme throughout his gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Jesus is the true lawgiver. He is the true temple. He is true Israel. He's the new and better Moses, right? He has a much bigger mission than even his disciples fully understand. So people find him interesting. They find him exciting, but they don't really get it. He has lots of admirers, but no one is prepared for the struggle. So they push the blind men aside and naively cheer his arrival in Jerusalem. Again, they get the worship right. They're big Jesus fans. But Jesus isn't really interested in having fans or collecting groupies. He doesn't want Facebook friends or Twitter followers or subscribers. He is building a kingdom. A priesthood of believers. A family of adopted brothers and sisters. He is building his church. And he's far less interested in a crowd of adoring fans than he is in two desperate men who are crying out. Jesus will always stop for the desperate ones. He stops he talks to them, and he even touches them. He's far more interested in desperation than he is in triumphalism. The story of Palm Sunday reminds us every year that it's possible to be a Jesus fan without really getting who Jesus is, because if this crowd really understood who this Jesus guy was, they wouldn't have screwed this part up, and they wouldn't have abandoned him within a week either. Sometimes the people who are the most excited about Jesus are really excited about an idea. They love the man that they want Jesus to be. And they worship the God that they wish would be. And they read the scriptures selectively and they reject people and cheer for things they don't understand. They get the worship right sometimes, but they don't have time for people. They're too busy with Jesus to love the lost and welcome them. And I think it's a convicting passage because here we are mimicking the crowd with the palms, but also we don't really think of ourselves as ignorant as this crowd was. So how do we apply this passage? Where do we see ourselves in the story? I'll give you a hint. We're not Jesus. You can skip that option. But do you relate more to the desperate blind men or the crowd following Jesus? Are you the one crying out for mercy or the one telling them to pipe down? 
And the scary thing in this story is that the latter group is a heck of a lot larger. And I think many professing Christians are like this crowd, pursuing our own agenda in Jesus' name and for the sake of the kingdom while ignoring and dismissing the people expects us to reach. We're too busy with Jesus stuff to make time for people. How many Christians claim to love God, claim to love Jesus, but refuse to reach out to the lost? Think of this. I mean, how hard would it have been for someone in this crowd to bring these blind men to Jesus? They've seen him heal people. They know what he can do. Why did these blind men even have to cry out? Why didn't one of these pious, energized members of the Jesus Club go directly to them and invite them into the center of the crowd to meet Jesus? Because Jesus is far too busy. He's too important for that. He's got bigger fish to fry right now. This is not a victimless crime. They are literally setting up barriers to seeing Jesus. They can see Jesus. They're not concerned for others to see. And the message to the blind man is that they need to get themselves together and not make a scene. After all, God helps those who help themselves, as St. Benjamin Franklin said. Well, we've been going through Jonah and talking about evangelism, and I keep saying that Jonah is the worst missionary of all time. I'll stand by that. But the church isn't always that much better. Maybe you begin to see the overlap here. <clears throat> there are people crying out to Jesus who can barely see him because the church puts up barriers and then sometimes has the nerve to rebuke them for their desperation. There are churches that are all about God and have no time for people who get the worship right but have little love for the lost. That is not how the kingdom is supposed to work. There's a reason Matthew ends his gospel with the Great Commission. It's the climax of the whole narrative. The final takeaway is go make disciples. But how do you make disciples if you keep sending people away? Even in this story, the blind men, ultimately, they just want to join the crowd. And that's exactly what they do. Once Jesus heals them, they blend right in with the rest. That's all they wanted. But the Jesus fan club doesn't want to help them get there. They'll just have to figure it out themselves. They don't offer to hold their hand and help them to follow Jesus. And they don't bring Jesus to them. It's like you guys are on your own. They would say they're all about Jesus, but they reject the ones that he came for. I don't know how Jesus tolerated it. But now it's time for an awkward application question. Is this true for us at LVPC? While we are marching along with Jesus in the parade, are we getting the worship right all while chasing people off? What kind of barriers do we set up that keep desperate people from being able to see him? I have to ask that question because I don't think this story would be here if we weren't meant to feel some conviction on the point. We 
could say we're following Jesus. We take our doctrine and our worship very seriously. But do we convey a sense that Jesus doesn't have time for some difficult people? When people visit here on a Sunday morning, do they feel like they can cry out to Jesus, literally or figuratively? Or do they think they better bottle that up? Do we talk to visitors about the gospel? Do we pray for each other on the spot? Do we bring people to Jesus or just hope that they'll figure it out on their own? I would say, in some respects, most of our, our, our morning service, right? It's, it's, <laughs> we're, we're, we're Presbyterians. It's designed to repress emotional outbursts, right? We're, we're the frozen chosen. We're stereotypical Presbyterians in that way. We're very good at focusing on doctrine. We're not real good at showing desperation. And that's not how discipleship's going to work. And we're not unique in this church. Many churches fall into this trap thinking that Jesus has higher priorities than reaching the lost. We would not say so out loud, but we build agendas that do not prioritize bringing marginalized people in to meet Jesus. We're too busy for that. And the message that that sends is that Jesus is too busy for that. Jesus can't deal with your neediness right now. The master is busy. We're too busy building the kingdom with Jesus to help others get into it. It's an insidious way of thinking. I've been reading The Shadowlands, which is a very brief biography of C.S. Lewis. Maybe some of you have read it. It's about him and the, the woman he married. Um, and at one point, C.S. Lewis became such a popular author, they're saying, that uh, he received a lot of fan mail. Much of it from female admirers, because they knew he was a bachelor. And uh, some of it got out of hand. At one point, one woman actually announced in the paper that they were engaged and like showed up unannounced on his doorstep and like had to be dragged away by you know, people. It's like, you know, it, got, it got to be messy. But basically, once C.S. Lewis had become so popular that he was the life of the party, he, party, he, he needed to establish boundaries. And it was keeping him from getting his other writing done. So he needed to stop answering some of the fan mail, especially from the neediest people. For instance, uh, women in troubled marriages that would write to him. And he was right to do this. That made sense. And the reason that makes sense is that C.S. Lewis was not Jesus. And you can't be Jesus for needy people either. I, I asked earlier if Jesus ever got tired of being the life of the party. I asked that question because I know that I do. Uh, sometimes I become convinced in my own head that I'm like at this irreplaceable piece. I have to be at all these events. I have to do all these things. And it's, it's kind of a conceited way of thinking. I, I feel like I have to go to everything. I have to do everything. I have to bring the party in the process, which helps with having six kids because you kind of bring your own parade in tow. Phil says it's like a clown car with us. But I have limits. I can't be Jesus for all the people in my life. I can't be Jesus for you. But you know who can be? Jesus. Turns out Jesus is highly qualified to be Jesus. And if you and I don't have the bandwidth for needy, desperate sinners, thankfully we know someone who does. And we have no excuse not to bring them in to meet him. 
and we certainly have no excuse for setting up barriers. <coughs> so are we here to be an exclusive Jesus fan club, or are we here to obey the Great Commission? Because Jesus isn't looking for groupies, he's looking for disciples. And Palm Sunday is not just a cautionary tale. Even if they didn't understand fully who Jesus was, it didn't stop him from being who he is. He is our Savior. And he never drives the crowd away in spite of their foibles. He accepts their worship and he lets them walk with him. And while many will flee, many will also come back. They'll be the same ones that end up spreading the, the good news in the book of Acts. So the point is not to give up, but to keep following and worshiping Jesus and to help others do the same and stop chasing them off. Let's resolve to be better than groupies. Let's act like disciples who want to make other disciples and who know who this Jesus is and are eager to share him with others. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the chance we have to come and to worship you, Lord. Lord, it's entirely fitting that we should celebrate Palm Sunday, Lord, just because the crowd didn't really get it back then. We do get it now. We can wave palms and know what we're doing in a way that they did not. But Lord, we also can get trapped in some of these same blind spots. thinking that we're serving you and in the process we don't have time for people. Lord, that is not, that's not the way Jesus thought in his ministry. He always makes time for the desperate. Lord, teach us to see the desperation around us. Teach us to be desperate for Jesus. Maybe that'll help us recognize it in others. And Lord, even if we don't have the bandwidth, even if we don't have the energy and we don't know how to fix any of these things, help us to bring them to Jesus. We thank you that he has no such limitations. And he puts up no such barriers. Lord, help us to be more like Jesus. Or even more like the blind men crying out than like an ignorant crowd just going through motions. We ask that that would be true this week and every week. In Christ's name we pray. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom